and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention. If you uh, would turn there, that would be great. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can use uh, the one in the pew ahead of you, and you'll find Acts chapter 2 on page 1091 in the Bible there. just I'll mention this, I haven't said this in a while, but if you're here and you don't have a Bible at all, please feel free to take one from the pews ahead of you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. You can just take it. Uh, We have plenty. We will replace it uh, in the pews. So take one um, if you would like to. I'm going to read from Acts 2, verses 1 through 36. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture. It will take me four or five minutes to read. Uh, So uh, follow along in the Bible as uh, we read this uh, together. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Hear what Holy Scripture says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, Oh, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But 
God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life And we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You know about the inevitable cycles that take place in the news. Uh, Stories and peoples and issues, they come and go. Uh, Right now in the world scene, uh, we don't take our eyes very often off of the Middle East, but what's happening in the world right now? Nothing but soccer, right? Football. Um, it's all over. In, in Pennsylvania, we have heard recently a lot about the budget. The governor signed it, I think, and now we'll see what's actually in it. Um, uh, across the country, uh, the Supreme Court has been setting the agenda for our discussion over the last uh, few weeks. Right at the end of June, of course, the Supreme Court uh, issued their their ruling concerning Hobby Lobby and uh, the Obamacare mandate to provide certain types of contraception through insurance plans. Now, I watched this case with a, a good deal of interest. I have similar concerns about religious liberty that were part of the case. It's a professional hazard. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to, um, months maybe, we'll get to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. And one of the things that's in Acts chapter 4 is a defense or a description of um, religious liberty and why we believe in freedom of conscience. It was the Baptists historically that have uh, placed this in uh, or, or pushed for it to be placed in our founding documents, this freedom of conscience or this old, the old Baptist term, individual soul liberty. And when we get to Acts 4, we're going to look at that and we're going to think about that and why the Bible would uphold this as, as a value. Uh, now, I was also interested in this case because of my convictions about the sanctity of life. It's interesting, if you talk about those cases before the Supreme Court in terms of contraception, opinions move one way. If you talk about them in terms of abortion, opinions move another way. Language matters. Uh, Both sides of the political spectrum, I understand this, both sides of the political spectrum use events for their own, uh, own various means. They put their own spin on it. Uh, But I have been interested to see how people who disagree with the decision have been, what they've been saying about Hobby Lobby and what they've been saying about the Greens. 
It's interesting. I don't hear very much discussion of the Mennonites at Conestoga Wood. You don't take on the Mennonites, apparently. They'll get you. The Amish Mafia will come after you, apparently. Uh, But there's been a lot of discussion about the Green family and what their real motives are. Uh, I read an article at, at Slate Magazine that said that the real issue here is about sex. This is about um, those who are trying to impose their restrictive views of sex on others, and they don't want us to experience the freedom that sexual liberation has brought us. Uh, some people, an, an alternative to this uh, that I've heard often, is that this is an example of, of the uh, conservative war on women. Hobby Lobby's uh, insurance coverage covers Viagra and vasectomies, so obviously they must hate women because they cover men's health issues. Uh, Some people said that Hobby Lobby was suing because they don't like President Obama, Uh, since Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act is his signature piece of legislation. They're they're suing over this. They're suing because they don't like the president. And then uh, veiled in there, of course, are charges of racism. This must be a racial issue. There was another columnist that I read. He identifies himself as a progressive Christian. He says, well, Hobby Lobby buys a lot of things from China. Everything in their store says made in China, and the Chinese don't really care about Christian freedom. So in what case can Hobby Lobby be really Christians if they sell things that are made in China? It can't really be about their Christian conviction. What all these lawsuits have in common, actually, or all these uh, theories have in common, is they say that the lawsuit could not ever have been about the issue of life. Can't be about babies. It's interesting when you hear a lot of people talk about abortion and women's health care, a lot of the things that they say only make sense if you discount a baby as a moral being. I haven't read a lot of these uh, opinions. Uh, Well, I've I've read a number of these opinions, but I haven't heard a lot specifically from the Green family themselves. But if we take their claim to be followers of Jesus Christ seriously, there is one motive that has to trump all others. And that motive is this. Those who follow Jesus Christ live their lives in submission to his lordship. That has to be the motive. That's, that's the answer to the ultimate why question. When anybody asks, why do you do what you do, our ultimate answer, when we're at our best, oh, when we're most consistent with our confession, our ultimate answer has to be, we are living our lives in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're going to take Christianity seriously, you have to deal with this as a central issue, the supremacy of Christ himself, his Lordship. And this passage that I just read from Acts chapter 2 is one of the most significant statements about the Lordship of Christ in all of the Bible. Let me set it again in in its context for just a moment. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, the day that the Spirit has been poured out. There is this new age of the Spirit following the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and His ascension into heaven. He has poured out the Spirit and this new age has begun. And when the Spirit came, there came with him these supernatural signs, this sound, this fire, this speaking in tongues. We looked at the first 13 verses of this chapter uh, last week. And then what happens is, 
Following that, in verses 14 through 36, Peter makes this speech. It's a sermon explaining what has happened. We're going to look at, in the coming months, a number of sermons or speeches in the book of Acts. Um, Acts has several of them. They're all summaries. Um, You can read this whole sermon in about three minutes. And that sounds pretty good to some of you. I don't think that Peter actually spoke for just that short amount of time. This is a a summary that Luke has for us. He summarizes all the the sermons in, in Acts. But they're summaries that are there to explain the action. And on this day, Peter is explaining what the arrival of the Spirit means. What does it mean that the Spirit has been poured out? In in the broader, though, book of Acts, this sermon stands at the beginning of this book because it's going to tell us why the apostles are going to do what they're going to do for the rest of the book. Why they're going to travel, why they're going to preach, why they're going to endure persecution, why they're going to study, why are they going to push back against cultural resistance, why are they going to go to jail, why are they going to sing when they're in prison, why are they going to pray at night? The short answer is in verse 36. They do all of these things because God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. That's the reason. The speech here uh, actually is meant to give you, as followers of Jesus Christ, an answer to that why question too. This speech here is meant to tell you why, after a much needed rest this summer, you're going to sign up again to teach Sunday school or to serve as an Awana leader. It's going to tell you why you give money so that people can go to Japan and Germany to share the gospel. Why you pray for friends who are in Morocco and people studying Hindi in India and running summer camps in Brazil. It, it helps clarify for us why when your basketball team goes to basketball camp this summer, explains why you take your Bible along and why you in front of your teammates open it up and read it before you go to bed. It's because God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. This is a rich passage. There's a lot here. I think it flows really quite simply. Again, what's the basic question of this sermon? Peter is trying to answer the question, what does it mean that the Spirit has been poured out? And in this sermon, he has three basic answers. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. I want to go over why does, uh, what does it mean that the Spirit has come? And along the way, I want to stop every now and then, and I, I want to, using this sermon, I'll, I'll give you some, some pointers or some ways in which what happens here and what's said here helps us as we think about the mission that all of us have, that we share with the apostles, that mission, namely, of witnessing about Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all over the world. So let's, let's start here. What does it mean that the Spirit has come? Three answers. Number one, it means that the last days have begun. It means that the last days have begun. This is in verses 14 through 21. The coming of the Spirit is what, prophet, what was prophesied by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. When, his, when the Spirit is poured out, just like Joel said, Peter says, uh, that's a sign that we are in the last days. 
Um, now, there's phrases that Peter uses and that Joel uses, he quotes from Joel, that I want to look at first before we look at the text more specifically. It says, first of all, uh, these, these two phrases, last days and day of the Lord. You see, verse, the day of the Lord is in verse 20. Now, the term day of the Lord refers to a day or a period of time of epic, cataclysmic judgment. Um, cataclysmic justice. Now, in the Old Testament, there were several times when God in particular visited the people and poured out judgment upon them. And those were many days of the Lord. But there is coming a focused, serious time in the future that is the day of the Lord. We joke sometimes at our house about the advertising that J.C. Penney does. You've seen it, I'm sure. I'm not sure. They, they changed in recent years. I don't know if they do this anymore. But J.C. Penney used to, about every three months, have the sale of the century. Right? The biggest sale ever. You won't believe these prices. It's unbelievable. So come to the sale, the biggest sale ever. They had a lot of big sales. If someday the Lord announces the apocalypse and the world is going to end, J.C. Penney will indeed have the biggest sale ever. It will be the sale to end all sales. That's how, that, that's how in fact, we'll know that the Lord is coming because J.C. Penney will be getting rid of everything they can. Right? There's lots of sales of the century, but there is going to come someday a sale. Right? There are days of the Lord in the Old Testament. There is, though, coming a day of the Lord. Now, leading up to that day of the Lord, there is what's called the last days. And the last days uh, is a period of time, it's lasted a long time now, in which there are certain signs, certain things that happen that show us that the day of the Lord is coming. Now, here's what's happening. In the book of Joel, one of those signs is the pouring out of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. In the last days... God says, and now he quotes from Joel, that wonderfully named Old Testament book. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The word pouring here means lavish overflow. Uh, this is Niagara Falls pouring. This is not water your cactus pouring. This is Niagara Falls pouring. And, and Joel and Peter both draw attention to the same thing, right? The Spirit, He comes, He's poured out on the, the men and the women, the rich and the poor, the young and the old. And the connection that Peter makes between Joel 2 and between what's happening in Acts 2 is that word prophesy. We're going to talk about the gift of tongues a little bit later when, when we finish Acts chapter 2. We'll spend a, a day talking about it. But tongues functioned in the early church very much like prophecy. Um, you would speak in a foreign language that you did not know and had not studied. It would be translated and the translation would function very much like a prophecy. That's why Peter uh, makes this connection. So there's this prophecy happening. Peter so stands up and he says, what does it mean? What do these things mean that you see, you Jerusalemites? You, you hear this language, these languages being spoken. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that Joel, when he prophesied that the Spirit would be poured out and there would be prophecy, it's happening right now. Joel is being fulfilled. Which means we're in the last days anticipating the day of the Lord. Now, look what happens here in verse 19. 
the prophecy has happened. There has, there has, the speaking in tongues is prophesying. Now in verse 19, he's going to describe some signs that are still yet in the future, that have not yet happened but will. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Uh, I go to funerals a lot. I speak at funerals a lot. I've, I've been at graveside services. I've been at cemeteries in all kinds of weather. Snow, uh, rain, uh, wind, blazing heat. Uh, I've also seen a lot of funerals on television shows and movies. What's the weather most often like in funerals and television shows? It's raining, right? That's kind of a heavy-handed way of saying that what is happening on scene is so sad that even the, cloud, even the sky is crying. Peter and Joel, Joel is repeating, excuse me, Peter is repeating Joel's prophecy that someday there is coming a judgment that is going to be so cataclysmic that even the earth is going to respond. It's going to be so significant, so severe that there's going to be signs. The heavens and the earth are going to respond and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Spirit has come We're in the last days and judgment is coming. And just like Joel said, if you're going to survive, the judgment is coming. You have to call on the name of the Lord. And Peter's audience, hearing the word Lord, would think Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to come back to what this passage says about judgment in a few minutes. But before we move on, what I want you to notice is I want you to think about who is delivering this sermon. You're supposed to see that contrast. Do you remember Peter? This is Peter. That Peter. That Peter who just uh, two months ago was standing in a courtyard when Jesus was on trial and a little girl came up to him and said, Hey, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he said, No way. Swore. I swear, I do not know the man. He's so afraid. And now at this moment, you're supposed to notice the difference. You're supposed to say, Is this the same guy? This is the same guy standing up and, and shouting about judgment that is to come to all these thousands of people. How can that be? Aha, the Spirit has come. I wonder what a difference the Spirit makes in your life. If you're more like pre-Spirit Peter in the courtyard where a little girl makes you afraid to own the name of Jesus, or if you're more like post-spirit Peter. Hmm. You're supposed to find that contrast encouraging. And you're supposed to think about what a difference the Spirit makes in your own life and the courage or lack thereof that you show. Now, let's move on here. The pouring out of the Spirit tells us that the last days are here. Joel prophesied that it would be so. Secondly, it tells us that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That's the emphasis of verses 22 to uh, 32. 22 to 32. Now, I think that there's a transition missing here in this text, in this summary. 
Because I think between verses 21 and 22, Peter must have said something like this. He must have said something like, now, you Israelites, you Jerusalemites, you should think about this for a minute. You should think about what it means that the Spirit has come on us, we who are Galileans, who are followers of Jesus. You should think about this. The Spirit did not just come on any Jews. The Spirit in particular, He has been poured out on us who are followers of Jesus. Why on, why on them? This is evidence, Peter says, that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. Look at verse 22 again, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Again, there's probably summary work here. What did Peter say in this moment? What could he have said? You remember Jesus, don't you? He'd only been crucified 50 days ago, 53 days ago. You remember Jesus and you remember all the miracles that he did. You remember how he gave sight to that blind man who who used to beg around around here. You remember that, don't you? You remember how he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember hearing all the things that he did about how he cast out demons and restored strength to the lame. You remember those stories, don't you? And everybody in the crowd would say, yeah, yeah we do. See, in, in our culture, Jesus, if you go around and ask people about Jesus, they will say to you, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a wise man. In this day, they believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus meets with Jesus and Nicodemus says, we know you've got to be from God in some way because no one can do the miracles you're doing um, unless they're they're from God. This is his reputation and Peter is, is pressing them about this. Now, just as a brief aside here, remember our calling in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is to be witnesses about Jesus. We tell people about him. We focus on him. Some of you are concerned. You don't want to open your mouth at where you work or before your friends at school because you're concerned. They're going to ask me questions I don't know the answer to. They're going to bring up some issue that I've never heard of before and I don't know what I'm going to say. Brothers and sisters, our task is to be witnesses about Jesus and to impress people with Jesus' wisdom and power and greatness, not our own. If you want to be better at talking to people about Jesus, learn more about him. Become intimately acquainted with him. And then talk about him. Now, that's what Peter does. And at this point in time, the crowd should be getting nervous. Verse 23 tells us why. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Uh Uh-oh. Follow me here. The Spirit has been poured out. Joel the prophet said that the Spirit, him him coming, him being poured out, is a sign that we're in the last days and that judgment is coming. And what does it mean? What could it possibly mean that the Spirit has been poured out on the followers of Jesus, the one that we crucified? Uh Uh-oh. 
Uh, imagine here that, that you're, you're going to a new company for a job interview and you show up at the parking lot, you're a little late and you're a little nervous and you're driving trying to find a spot and it's just packed, there's cars everywhere. As you're, as you're driving down a, a, a row, you look over in the next row, there's a spot, great. So you gun it a little bit and you go around the corner and just as you go around the corner to come in the row, you see coming from the opposite end somebody else. Hmm... Now, you're a Christian. You have, what am I going to do at this moment, right? Well, you need a job so you can tithe. So you gun it a little bit. You speed up a little bit, and, and, and you go down the aisle, and just at the last minute, you pull into the spot. And, and you see in your rearview mirror, you can't help it. You may be a Christian, but you're a sinner too. You can't help it. You look in the rearview, and you, just, you, have, you gloat just a little bit at, at the driver behind you. Well, you get out of your car and you go into the building and uh, you find where you're supposed to have your interview and you, you, you sit in the waiting room. And you know where the story is going, right? <laughs> exactly where I'm going. You walk into the conference room and there sitting at the table interviewing you is, is unlucky Parker number two, right? Person who didn't get the spot that you stole from them and that you gloated. This person... She's responsible for determining whether or not you get this job. Uh-oh. The Spirit has been poured out. Joel prophesied that when the Spirit is poured out, it will be a sign of the last days and the day of the Lord when there will be cataclysmic judgment. And the Spirit has come on the followers of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. What do you think is going to happen to you, Jerusalemites, in the day of judgment? Are you safe? Uh-oh. And it gets worse, actually. Peter, he, he, he pushes a little bit more. He tells them that they should have known about this. That the resurrection was part of God's plan from the beginning. It was revealed and David wrote about it. Look at verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 24 first. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. That word agony is very interesting. It doesn't mean death pains. That word agony is actually a word that means birth pains. It's interesting. Birth pains. We have expecting women in our church, and I occasionally talk to them about how they're doing towards the end. Uh, many of the, the women who have given birth in, in a church, and, and I talk to them, and about the seventh month, maybe a little sooner, they start saying to me, it's coming, getting a little nervous, nervous about the delivery process and how it will go and if they'll be able to handle it. And I usually don't say this out loud, but I don't think, but I often think to myself when they say, I'm nervous about this, I, I think to myself, there's no going back. There's only one way that this is going to end. Right? That baby is coming out. Um, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the birth pangs of death. Death could no more hold on to Jesus than a pregnant woman in labor can keep her baby inside. Now, as I read that, that's a, that's a great note of triumph. That's, that is awesome. And the, the Jews who were hearing this, though, must have thought, uh-oh. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, look, here he quotes from David. David said about him, 
Uh, this is David's confidence. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me. That word me is important. To the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Who's the me in those verses? Peter says... It can't be David. David wrote these lines, but it can't be him. Why? Because, verse 29, David's tomb is here. I can show you where his bones are. I can show you that he died. He has seen decay. No, Jesus, uh, Peter says, what happened was this. God had said to David so many years ago, one of your descendants is going to reign forever. And David had confidence that the resurrection was going to happen. And David wrote Psalm 16 in anticipation. He wrote it as a song for the Messiah to sing. You should have known, Jerusalemites, that there was going to be a resurrection. That it was going to happen. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. There's again that word witness, isn't it? You shall be my witnesses, Acts 1 says. Again, follow this. Peter is starting to push these people a little bit. What does it mean that the Spirit has been poured out? Well, I'll tell you, it means that, G, that, that Joel's prophecy is coming true. Because Joel prophesied that when the Spirit would come, there would be more prophecy. There would be the last days, and then there would be the day of the Lord when there would be judgment by God. And everybody, if you want to escape this judgment, you have to call on the name of the Lord. And, and the Spirit has come on the followers of Jesus, who is at the center, apparently, of God's plans. And we should have known it because David saw it, and David wrote about it. It's in the book. What's going to happen to us? We have crucified the one who is supposed to be our deliverer. What could this possibly mean? How many of those who were in that crowd when Peter was preaching were among that same crowd who 53 days ago had shouted in Pilate's courtyard, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And now Peter is saying to them, he is the risen one. And the fact that the spirit has been poured out is a sign to you. What must this mean for us? Peter's affirming here that the hope of the followers of Jesus didn't die on the day that he did. They thought that it had, but the presence of the Spirit is here for all to see, to testify that his life was not over. God raised him from the dead. Now, I want you to notice here for just a minute in this passage how, especially in this section, Peter emphasizes the work that God does in the passage. Uh, verse 22, it says, God attests or accredits. Uh, verse uh, 22, he also works. God did these things among you. Verse 23, God plans, God foreknows. Verse 24, God raises. As followers of Jesus Christ, we understand that God the Father and God the Son are inextricably linked. Actually, in this chapter, right, the Spirit comes too, doesn't he? And all three of these, the members of the Trinity, are together. You can't separate them. We are those who cannot separate and will not be satisfied with the separation of God the Father and God the Son. It's important, I think, to think about because it's very common in our culture to talk about God. There's God talk everywhere. 
in, in uh, civil ceremonies. God bless America. We want God to do this, and I'm thankful for God, and God helped me. If you talk about God on the radio, uh, people will think it's a little quaint, but it will be okay. If you write a letter to the editor about God, that's fine. But if you write about Jesus, that's a different matter. We cannot be content with, with civil... Re- I'm not opposed to people mentioning God's name in public, certainly. But if the God that you mention is not the Father of the Lord Jesus who raised him from the dead, we're not talking about the same God. Uh, Now, let's move on here. Third, what does it mean that the Spirit has been poured out? It tells us that Jesus is exalted. That's in verses 33 through 36. Jesus is not just alive. He is now exalted on high, and he's been given all authority. Verse 33 says... He's exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This, too, is something that David knew and that David wrote about. He wrote about it in Psalm 110, which is quoted there in verse 34. David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David's not talking about himself, he's talking about his descendant, the Christ. Peter is using what happened here, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and he's combining it with the prophecy of Joel and the Psalms of David to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to draw them to this awesome conclusion, this fearful conclusion. I'll say it again. The Spirit has been poured out. He has come. This is just like what Joel prophesied would happen. Uh, and that the, the presence of the Spirit would be a sign of the last days and the day of the Lord. And this crowd needs to understand that the Spirit has come not just on any Jews, but on the followers of Jesus, the one they crucified, the one they should have recognized because he rose from the dead, the one who is now exalted at God's right hand. And he draws them to this conclusion, this ringing conclusion. Let all Israel be assured of this. Jesus, whom you crucified, is the Lord and the Messiah. Now think about these, these titles for just a minute. Messiah, he's the anointed one. That is, he's the one that God promised to be Israel's deliverer king. They have just crucified their king. He's alive, surely he's alive, but what must this mean for them? They are the ones who put him on a cross. He's the Lord, he's Messiah, he's Lord. That is, the day of judgment, what's it called? It's the day of the Lord. He's the coming judge. He's the one that you need to call on if you want to be saved. And if you're his enemy, you are in trouble What should they do? Oh, Peter, tell us. We're going to look at this more next week, but in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and all the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What should we do? We crucified crucified the Lord, our Deliverer, the Messiah. Now, before I answer that question, and, and Peter does, doesn't he? I want you to, to notice here the appeal that Peter is making. He's warning them of judgment to come. 
That's not the usually the way that we appeal to people to follow Jesus Christ these days, is it? Uh, we're much more inclined to talk about God's love which is certainly a key theme of the Bible. God is love. He offers you life. The Bible makes that appeal over and over and over again. And and we're right to make that appeal. God loves you. He made you. He loves you. Sometimes, though, the appeal we make, we make appeals to people's needs. Are you afraid? Are you lonely? Do you feel guilty? Well, let me tell you about the God who has promised to be your constant companion and wash away your sins and protect you like a good shepherd. The Bible makes appeals like that over and over and over again. But here, notice what's happening, Peter is threatening them. He is telling them that judgment is coming. It's probably not our first strategy. It's probably not the first strategy you think of. I don't think that it is in the teaching material that they're going to teach English with in Japan and Germany. God is coming to judge you. Probably that's not there. You'll be surprised when we go through the book of Acts how much it's a part of the evangelistic preaching in the book of Acts. You'll see this over and over again. Maybe one of the ways, one of the reasons that we shy away from starting here is because uh, judgment is an appeal that that, do, that doesn't seem to work very well, does it? It's only uh, uptight, fringe, angry fundamentalists who believe in judgment. God is love; He loves us all. That's His job. We don't believe in judgment. You you might want to dismiss this judgment. You might want to dismiss this, but I don't think you want to dismiss it because you don't believe in judgment. I think everybody believes in judgment. But not everyone agrees about the terms of judgment. Think with me for for a minute about this. This is just uh, um, experiment and, and speculate for a little bit. I think that people who abuse children ought to be judged. If you molest or you beat a child, you deserve justice. In fact, there is a strong part of me that believes that you deserve more than just what the criminal justice system in this world can exact. Do do you agree with me about that? Uh, Most people do. And if you were abused as a child, and statistically there are many people in this congregation who experienced that. If you were abused as a child and I say to you that there is a God who is perfect in justice, who, who is a defender of children, that's, that's good news, isn't it? You receive that as, 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 as comforting and, and helpful. The man or the woman who did this will not escape ultimate justice. They may never have been reported to any criminal justice agency in this world, but they will not escape judgment. That, that's good news. It, it's good news if you live in Nigeria and you've been kidnapped to know that there is a God of justice. 
Um, let's think about a different category of, of people for a minute. I think that racism is worthy of judgment. If, if you evaluate and you categorize and you reject people on the basis of the color of their skin um, or the, their facial features, you deserve judgment. I bet that most people in the United States in particular would agree with you, whether you're a Christian or not, you'd agree with me uh, about that. Here, here's another example, one more I think we can agree on. If you're a crooked politician... Whether you have a Republican or whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you use your power of office to enrich yourself and to enrich your friends and enrich your family, and if you use your power of office to get out of being prosecuted, I think that you deserve judgment. We don't agree very much about whether or not our, uh, which politicians deserve it. I was listening um, to a debate from the National Constitution Center. They were arguing about whether or not something that President Obama had done was unconstitutional. And uh, one person said, yes, definitely. And then the next person in the debate said, yeah, but President Bush did something worse. It was not a very helpful discussion. We might disagree about who is crooked and who is not, but we don't like any of them who are. Now, notice here what, what, I've, what I've done. It's I have created some categories. Created categories. There are people who deserve judgment, and implicitly so, there's people who, who don't. Huh, right? Child molesters, they deserve judgment. Racists deserve judgment. Politicians, crooked, not just all of them. Crooked politicians deserve judgment. And when we talk in those categories, judgment is, is good. It's, it's necessary, right? The problem is, I've created categories and I don't fit in that one, right? I, 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 don't, I don't belong in that category, so of course judgment would be good for them and we should celebrate judgment. It belongs to, judgment is for the crooked politicians and the racists and the, the child molesters. I, I've created a category that I don't, I don't fit in. Sometimes I've, I've heard it said that, that people who are the most vociferous to deny judgment and the necessity or the goodness of it are those who have not suffered very much at the hands of other people. If your God hates the same people that you do and judges the same people that you do, you don't worship a real God and you don't worship the God of the Bible. Who belongs in that judgment category according to the Bible? The Bible says that everyone belongs in that category. I don't think your problem, if you have a problem with this, I don't think your problem is with judgment itself. The problem is with the categories and who belongs in which category. You see how Peter in this passage moves them into the judgment category? You crucified him. You crucified him. Oh. The Bible speaks in broad terms. You know what it says? It says, all have sinned and fall short of God's holy standards. Everyone belongs in that category. And if you need specific labels, the Bible provides them. Who deserves to be judged? Gossips. Greedy people, proud people, thieves, adulterers, those who lust, those who hate, people who disrespect their parents, the self-righteous, those who neglect the poor, those who tell lies about other people. You believe in judgment, but I imagine your standards are not the same as God's. 
But we say in light of the warnings that the Bible has, what do we do? What do we do? Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a call of trust. It's a call of dependence. It's a call of faith in the Lord who is the deliverer and the one who is coming to judge. In verse 38, Peter's going to use the word repent. We'll talk about this more next week. Which means to turn. Turn to him. You are headed down a path that you think will satisfy you. It's a path that people tell you you're supposed to enjoy. It's a path you learn about from your friends or your business associates or you learn about on television or magazines. In your imagination, this is the path that's going to make me happy. And you turn from it to him. The one who was crucified. The one who bore God's judgment on the cross for our sins and then rose again. And now he is in heaven. And he gives salvation. He gives the blessing of the Spirit to all who call on him. He's the one who is anxious to respond to those who turn to him. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we proclaim. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, great God, this sermon that Peter preached, it would have been marvelous to be there to hear it. And, and yet, if, if we were there, it's likely we would have been among those guilty of this crime of crucifixion that he convicts them of. Lord, there are so many weighty and significant things in this, in this, this chapter. I, I pray, Father, that you would bring us in our affections and in our mind to Peter's great conclusion that the Lord Jesus is the reigning, supreme, living master of the universe and the coming judge. Lord, I am, I am grateful to you I'm grateful to you for the, the family in which I was born and the church that they took me to where the Lord Jesus was exalted as the great Savior. And I thank you, Father, that according to your kindness, though we are fallible human beings, we have the privilege in our church, in our Sunday school rooms, and in our Awana Club meetings and, and in Pyro Student Ministries to continue to proclaim that same Lord. Keep us faithful to that, we, we pray. And we ask that you would exalt your Son in our minds and in our hearts and behind this pulpit. Because you, in your great triumph, have raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Messiah. And we worship you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. Thank you.